welcome to another Library Discoveries with me, Paul Detman. This week we're looking at Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, a particular edition by the Daily Express newspaper, printed in 1933. And this one really gives me a chance to expand out the remit, if you like, of Library Discoveries. This is not a library book, but I did say right at the beginning that we would also look at rare books, old books, printed papers, maps, letters, you know, anything to do with the printed page or even perhaps in future not the printed page, maybe the handwritten page, but something vaguely bookish. And this one is special because I bought it as part of a set this year in 2020 with the proceeds from another book that I was selling at the time. So I sold one book and with it got eight books. So I think that was a good bargain. They form a nice set and they look nice on the shelf too. We will look at the book itself as an object. We're going to look at foxing and the various bad things that can happen to old books. In particular, I wanted to say a bit about Wuthering Heights, the story of the book, how I came about it in the first place. That won't take long, I promise you. And then we have a couple of extra bits for you, added value around the printing company that made this book and some other bits and pieces too. So let's start with my Wuthering Heights story. And my Wuthering Heights story begins with the single, The Song by Kate Bush. No two ways about it. I used to listen to that song a lot as a teenager in the 80s, uh, although it was a 70s song, I think, a late 70s song when it was first released. It was popular throughout the 80s. It was remixed and reissued. It was Kate Bush's and remains Kate Bush's best-selling song, I think. It, certainly it's the, the one that I think of, together with Hounds of Love and Running Up That Hill, or Deal With God, as Kate prefers to call it. So Wuthering Heights, for a very large part of my childhood, was a song by somebody who was very famous in the UK. Kate Bush was just as famous as Madonna, Stevie Nicks, you know, those sort of people. In some areas of the UK, she was more famous than those people. She was close to Pink Floyd. Uh, a lot of the Pink Floyd sound effects and in the days when sound effects were expensive to make, they made their way onto Kate Bush records. Everybody knows the various stories about the demo tapes and Dave Gilmore. It was an interesting way into a Victorian novel but I was 18 before I read it and I read it right through and it's not what I expected. I think the, the bits about Heathcliff and Cathy in the early pages are genuinely scary, very frightening somehow. Books are not normally frightening to me, but the early pages of Wuthering Heights where Lockwood is trapped in the house in a snowstorm and he hears the finger at the window, the, the tapping on the glass is genuinely terrifying. And I think that's the terror that you get from listening to the song. If you listen to it properly, yes, it's a nice single. It's a, it's a catchy song, but it's also terrifying. And in that sense, it's a Gothic novel. It's a novel about other things too, of course, about Heathcliff, the outsider, the interloper, coming into a pretty much aristocratic family, landed family in Yorkshire, which is where I grew up. It has a lot going for it, for somebody growing up in Yorkshire who is used to the wilds and used to the cold, dry, cold weather. And then you add the Kate Bush angle and the songs and all the musicals and the movies, and it becomes a, a whole thing by itself. So that's my Wuthering Heights story. We're not going to do a York Notes on it. You can do that yourself, but I think everybody has a, a Wuthering Heights story who likes Wuthering Heights, and that's mine. Thank you. So before we go on to the book itself, 
when we hand over to Paul, who will, will take you through the book and do all that flicking the pages and the ASMR stuff that he likes to do, you will hear mention of a printer's. And the printer of my edition here is a company called Hazel Watson and Viney, Hazel Watson Viney Limited of London and Aylesbury. And those of you who have followed this will know that this is being recorded in Buckinghamshire, not too far from Aylesbury. So that was an interesting hook that, that led me into this particular piece. Turns out that Hazel Watson was a huge printing company. And when I say huge, I mean one of the biggest. Uh, If I just scan through this very detailed Wikipedia entry. So just scanning quickly through this, you will see that by 1939, the firm's employees numbered 1,700 people split across two or three different sites. Some mergers and acquisitions happened and the usual things sort of happened. But it was really a very powerful printing company until after World War II. It got merged or renamed into a group of companies called Hazel Sun until 1963 when it merged again and became the British Printing Corporation. To me, Hazel, Watson and Viney is a company I'd never heard of before. They no longer exist as uh, an individual entity. In 1963, along came the British Printing Corporation and they got involved in, or continued rather, to print newspapers, but the books themselves were generally printed in Aylesbury, just down the road. In 1981, a very famous man called Robert Maxwell got hold of the company. He originally bought some shares and then gradually expanded his shareholding and got control of the company and carried on growing and merging and so on. And it collapsed following his death in 1991, as so many other Maxwell companies did. And then it got resold, cut up, merged around and moved in with the US arm of Macmillan and off it went to Pearson and it got chopped up and all of the bits got sold off in different ways. But essentially, there are parts of that company which still exist today. Now, the printing sheds in Aylesbury are no longer part of that company, as far as I know. This is a bit of research I need to do in the future. Once the lockdown's finished, we can go to Aylesbury, see the building at least. It's a very impressive building, as you will see if you look at the show notes. And it's just really interesting that powerful, large, successful British company that's printed millions of words of newsprint and books and so on over the years, a period of around 100 years, because the origins of that company can be traced back to uh, around 1839, when William Paul started the company, and it, it became Watson's in 1843. And it was still going over 100 years later, very successful. And it's no longer with us, but the books are. And that's the thing about this podcast. It's it's looking at the book as a piece of history and putting the book in the context of its past and its future. Nobody who ever was involved in producing this set of books in the 1930s could really have foreseen another war and all of the things that followed from that. And that the people who put these letters onto this paper would still be going after 100 years and beyond. Uh, And I think that's one of the reasons I'm so keen on books is because they are a way to time travel back into the past. But but look at where we started this monologue. You started with a famous pop singer who loved the story and retold it in her words, in her way, using something that she was good at, which became interesting to me. So I then went to the Emily Bronte version and read the full story and understood the story better. And then 
Years later, Daily Express comes along, prints another copy. There's so many thousands of editions now all around the world. And then here we are today, 2020, 150 years after this book was written. And the story is just as valid now as it was then. So with that, I will hand you over to Paul to look at the book as an object. Thanks, Paul. So here we have the section where we look at the book itself as an object. First of all, holding the book in my hand, it's got a good weight to it. It's got Wuthering Heights and Agnes Grey in the same hardcover blue. It has a gold-lettered spine, Wuthering Heights, Emily Bronte, Agnes Grey and Bronte, with a flying Pegasus with stars and whatnot on the spine. And then that is blind stamped on the cover as well. Uh, The cover is kind of blacky blue. It's meant to look like leather. It's not leather. Uh, Inside the end papers are blue. Nothing too much going on there. Starting at the back. Sometimes we start at the back because quite often back in 1933, the printer's name is on the back. So we've got made and printed in Great Britain by Hazel Watson and Viney Limited, London and Aylesbury. More later. Um, Inside we have a line, hand-drawn line thing for Emily Bronte, a portrait side on. Uh, done by Branwell. Again, the Pegasus thing on the title page, but facing the other way. Is it the same thing in a mirror, or is it redrawn? I can't tell. It looks like it might be redrawn, actually. The wings are different. Uh, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, 1933 Daily Express Publications. And a lot of newspapers used to produce quite good editions of classic fiction and non-fiction and so on. Uh, I've got a set of these. I bought the set from the proceeds of another book, so I had a, a signed edition that I So I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of these. Uh, All of them pretty much, I'm looking at them on my shelf, which is why my voice has gone quiet, have some kind of connection or importance to me in some way. So we've got Mill on the Floss, which was the first Victorian novel I studied at school for sixth form, um, year 12 or 13 for the younger generation. This is Wuthering Heights. This was the very first Victorian novel I read purely because I wanted to. Um, and that was mainly because of Kate Bush, which, again, more later. Looking into the book, we have the foreword with a small ink drawing by Emily from her diary. The foreword is by a guy called Wilfred Partington. Let's look at him in a minute. There's three illustrations. There's the portrait mentioned. There's some handwriting, actually, not an illustration. And then there's an illustration by a guy called Percy Smith of what is titled Wuthering Heights, Top Withins. Uh, It's meant to be a house on the moors at Haworth. As you would expect, the book is lightly foxed, or indeed slightly foxed, on the edges. I can't detect any foxing inside the book. It's just along, you know, outside the edges. We'll talk about foxing in this episode because I've been promising it for so long. The top edge is dyed. Could be black, dark grey, blue. It's hard to tell, but just the top edge. I've seen dyed before, but not just one edge like that. I can't explain that. They're all like that, though. Quite nicely printed. Smells good. Smells right. Not too tobacco-y, just sort of normal. No leather, of course, so it's purely the paper that you can smell, really. Then we're on to the biographical note of Ellis and Acton Bell. Anybody who knows anything about the Brontes knows that, as with other female novelists, they pretend to be men to get published. George Eliot, obviously, Mill on the Floss just mentioned. Um, Cora Bell was Charlotte, and she writes because uh, Ellis and Acton, her two sisters, were dead um, years before she was, so she got to rewrite and, and write their histories. That's become slightly controversial in recent years. But there we go. There's a little bit about whether Elias Acton and Curra were the same person. They're not. They never were. 
I think we all know that now, but perhaps at the time that wasn't known. Then there's another editor's preface. So we've had the foreword, we've had the biographical notice, and now we have the editor's preface. My goodness. Who's that by? Lo and behold, it's Corabel. There we go. 1801, chapter one. I have just returned from a visit to my landlord, the solitary neighbour that I shall be troubled with. And that's by, is it Lockwood? I never remember his name. You're not meant to remember his name, but Lockwood is the narrator for much of this, of course. And then we're into Wuthering Heights. So there we go. That's the book. Wuthering Heights, Agnes Grey, Daily Express, 1933. Foxing. So in many editions of this podcast, we've talked about foxing. If you don't know what foxing is, let's start at the beginning. It's brown, blotchy, yellowy brown blotches on paper. You first tend to see it when it starts to take hold of a book around the edge of the paper. So if you're looking at a closed book, top, sides, bottom, you'll see brown blotches. And if it's gone really wrong, when you open it, you will see brown blotches inside the paper. None of the books covered yet has gone that far. It's just around the edge. And actually, some people don't mind the speckledy look to it. It's a sign of age. It can be quite nice. It's not great on this one. It's kind of a bit random. And there's clearly... The foxing's got attached to spills or fingerprints. It's it's in the middle of the, the, the long edge, the, the vertical edge of the book. It's where thumbs have been placed. And there's something at the top corner as well. That kind of foxing tends to be caused by grease and dirt and, and whatever that's been on people's hands. But also it can be caused by a form of mould... And I'm reading here uh, all about how it can be caused by impurities in the paper itself, either metallic impurities or impurities caused by dirt and pollution over the years. What you see from that is that foxing is imprecise. It's not like saying, oh, the cover's made of leather or uh, the paper's made of cotton. It's not precise. And I've linked in the show notes to a paragraph here on, on the V&A Museum in London, the Victorian Albert Museum says that foxing describes disfiguring small yellow-brown spots or blotches on paper. Two main causes are mould and iron contaminants. And on it goes, giving the more or less what I just said. But essentially they're saying that it's rust. It does look like rust, but paper itself cannot rust. And that's how you get to the iron impurities caused in the, the printing process. And this article is very long. It talks about all kinds of other things. It's worth a look. It it kind of confirms what I'd heard before, which is that foxing is not a chemical or scientific description. It's more of an appearance. You know, it's the colour of a fox. It's brown. It's blotchy. It's random. And it comes with age. You can't really get rid of it. Apparently some conservators think they can clean it out and reduce it, but you really can't get rid of it. Because once it gets into a book, it's either on the edge of every page or it's on the inside of every page. It's not normally worth your while to go through three or four hundred pages cleaning them all up, even if you could. It's hard to fake, I would imagine, as well. People try that with tea bags and, you know, if you've ever tried making parchment paper for an art project, tea bags are a good way to do that. It does look like a tea stain on or coffee stain on the book. That's Foxing. And of course, uh, gives its name to our favourite quarterly publication, Slightly Foxed. So that's a nice gratuitous mention for Slightly Foxed. And you'll notice from the name Slightly Foxed that foxing is never total. If the foxing was total, the paper would just be brown. So you have to have this kind of mottled, blotchy effect for it to be foxing. You can't have completely foxed. 
but you can have lightly, slightly, you know, a bit foxed. So that's foxing. I will come back to it in future. I will mention it again. You will not see it on a new book. So if you're looking at a fake, uh, if there's no foxing, it's probably newish or it's been very well cared for in an air-conditioned room, no damp and all the rest of it in darkness. And very few books that were intended to be read as these popular editions were intended to be read. Very few books of a certain age escape foxing. So you've either got a fake on your hands or you've got a book that was known to be a future keeper, something that would gain in value. So, for example, there might be some Harry Potters out there which have been kept unread in a dark room, which may take a lot longer to fox. They may never fox. What I want to check out in future is whether a new paper, a really top quality, acid-free new paper will fox. Because in theory, if there's no impurities and it's not polluted anymore, then you won't get foxing. But I, I think and suspect that actually you will. It might just take longer to take hold. So there you go. Foxing. So you heard mention there of a guy called Wilfred Partington, who wrote the foreword to this edition. And there is more information in the show notes, but I found a reference to his archive in a Huntington library in California, which I'm pretty sure is the same guy. He's an English author, editor, bibliographer, and journalist, Wilfred Partington, 1888 to 1955. And he was the editor of the Bookman's Journal and a print collector until 1931. Uh, this collection of papers includes 27 boxes and so on and so forth. He was clearly highly regarded. He served in both the First and Second World Wars, uh, also in the Office of Censorship in the Second World War, and he was trusted to write this foreword to this edition of Wuthering Heights. And I think that's the kind of little detail that can set you off. It's almost like, who do you think you are? Or a family tree history is that we have a book by an English novelist reprinted, forwarded by somebody I'd never heard of. I had to look this up. And there's pictures of him in the National Portrait Gallery. He was clearly a well-known person. He's not that easy to find online, but I'm sure if you dig around, you'll find stuff and references to him throughout his lifetime. He seems to have been quite prolific. Wilfred Partington, who wrote the foreword, which I mentioned there when we were looking at the book as the object. So that little note brings an end to today's episode. Hope you've enjoyed it. It's a bit different to normal. It's not a library book, but I never said that it would only be library books. And it's certainly um, quite a personal story and quite an interesting object. It's not valuable. It's not that rare. It's a it's a mass-produced reprint. But still, I think you've seen today, we have a lot of interesting little offshoots to investigate in future. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Library Discoveries. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider donating to help with our hosting costs. We do not carry any adverts of our own, and we rely on donations to continue. To do this, and to read more about the books featured in Library Discoveries, please visit our website, librarydiscoveries.uk. Thank you for listening. See you next week.